last few weeks we've been talking about the strategies of Satan. And, uh, and again, I, I, I want to make sure that we all understand that we do this because we need to have information. And we do this so that we then can be better prepared to handle the enemy's attacks as he brings them because he is going to bring them. And he brings them on a regular basis. So the more that we're understanding what his strategies are, the better we can be ready to handle them. And, and uh, we're going to work again. We're going to finish up what we started last Sunday. But just a quick review. We've talked about Satan as being the deceiver. And the deceiver works in the mind to bring doubt and denial of God's love and well-being for us. And he brings ultimate deception as he works in our mind, which is also the place where God works the most too. So it's amazing how enemy and... Satan and God work in the same place quite often, and uh, that's, why, that's why Satan puts a lot of emphasis in our mind. But if he can't get us to our mind, then he brings us, uh, he brings us the destruction that comes through our physical body, through our health and through our, our, our well-being, and he attacks us there in a way to uh, make us bring doubt into God's provision and his healing power. And then we also talked about how he is the ruler of this world and, and of this generation. And, and in that, uh, he affects our willpower and our will. So he accuses us and he brings us into uh, all kinds of problems through working as a deceiver, as a destroyer, as a ruler. And then we're going to talk to him, to him as an accuser. And this is kind of brings all of these three other areas together because he brings accusation against us and in that areas of all those different areas, and that's where he really brings us down to a point where he can weaken us and get to us. Uh, in the book titled Satan at His Kingdom, and His Kingdom written by Dennis McCallum, he says, Causing Christians to sin is the beginning, not the end, of Satan's plan. One of his key goals is to exploit the psychology and spiritual turmoil sin causes in us. Deception goes into high gear if he succeeds. By planting accusations in the minds of believers who fall into sin, Satan takes events that should be resolved easily and turns them into highly destructive episodes. Now, how true that is, we're all going to fall into sin of different types at different times in our lives. And the real simple solution is we repent, we confess, Jesus forgives, he restores, and we don't do that sin again. We move on. It's really pretty simple. But the devil brings all kinds of accusations against us in the process of that, and that's where we then have to pick up. And so last week we talked about him being uh, the accuser and that he accuses humans to God, whereas we then are, he brings us to God's um, vision and God's attention as us being unworthy to be of God's value. And he's right. We really are. So he, the accusations aren't untrue necessarily, but God always looks at that and says, Satan, I know your ploy. I know what's going on. These are people that have sinned, but yet they have asked for forgiveness because of my son. My son paid the penalty for their life, for their sin. Therefore, Satan, they are no longer uh, fair game for you. So stop accusing them. I'm not going to listen to you. So God will defend us. As G Satan brings accusations about us to God, God is there to defend us. He is on our side. Understand that God is defending us. He doesn't like the sin. He's not, he never defends the sin. He never justifies the sin. But as we cover the sin through the blood of Christ, God is there to defend us against the accusations of the enemy.
And then the enemy accuses God to humans. And what's that, what that's all about is that God, uh, or the enemy brings, he brings accusations that God is not really big enough to handle my problems. God really doesn't love me that much. God really has got other things in the world and other things in the universe to be concerned about than me. And then um, all the different things in the Bible that God writes specifically for me, all the areas in how I should live and the shoulds and the should nots, um, how the enemy uses those against us. And rather than us realizing that they are written for us to protect us, the enemy says they're written to keep you from the better things of life. That's the, that's the accusations that he brings. And so last week, I asked the youth specifically to write something down, and I'm going to see if they remembered. When the Bible says don't, what does it really mean? Don't what? Don't hurt yourself. So when, the, when God says don't live in sin, don't live in a life of, of uh, duplicity or confusion, he's really saying when you do that, you're ultimately going to hurt yourself. So if you will just listen to my words, listen to my instructions, and do what I say, I will help you from hurting yourself. So the don'ts in the Bible are not to keep us down. They're not to keep us boring people. They're not to keep us depressed. They are to really give us life, uncompromised life with the fullness of Jesus. So when the Bible says don't, it really means don't hurt yourself. So today we want to talk about the third and the fourth um, areas of accusation and number three is that the enemy will bring accusations from believers to each other. Believers to each other. And that's one of Satan's many names is the accuser. He is the accuser, and there's nothing better that he is at than at getting us to accuse each other as well. Satan triumphs at getting into human relationships and creating havoc among us. It's one of his major efforts... Uh, to create strife and disunity among brethren in churches and in homes between church members and between spouses. He loves to do that. No better way to destroy the church and the home than to get in and cause disunity and distrust among brethren and among spouses. And those are the two areas that he really wants to destroy. Those are the two major areas that God has established. He's established the church and he's established the home. And what is under most attack in, in our society today? What is under the most attack in our governmental, between the separation between church and state? What's in the attacks when it comes to movies and, and TV sitcoms? What are they attacking? They're attacking the home. They're wanting to destroy the unity between a mother and a father. They want to bring in um, same-sex marriages. They want to destroy, and that's the enemy's ploy because he knows that if he can destroy the home, he ultimately will destroy the church. And if he destroys the church, then he's destroying what God has established. And that's what the enemy's plan is, is to destroy what God has established. So that is one of the things, that those are the two areas that Satan is really active in. If he can get us to quarrel, if he can have, get us to have suspicious attitudes or to doubt each other's love or to bring unjustified fear that, that we're going to hurt each other, then he is winning that battle amongst accusations against brethren. See, it's interesting that when we interact with each other, we are constantly picking up signals about how we're doing in the conversation. When I'm speaking to someone, I'm reading their body language. And rightly so, you're reading mine. And so we're, that's kind of a measuring stick. Are we really communicating or not? 
We're watching their, their, visual, their visual signals, their facial expressions. and their, Are we making eye contact or not? What's their body position? What's their, are their arms folded? Are they, you know, if they're folded, they're probably not receiving a whole lot from you. Anybody got folded arms today? But if, or if they're, if they're you know, leaning back in the seat and if they've got their head back, especially if it's like this. And I've seen that a few times, by the way. I've seen this, too. And I know you're not praying. But we, we pick up on body signals. And, um, and we're supposed to pick up the body signals. That's part of the communication. That's why it's so hard when people text message all the time and, and emails. And, in fact, you know, I've heard it said that 2011 is the year that we're going to stop talking and we're going to keep texting and messaging. And, and when you do that, you lose the ability to read people's body language. And that's so important. It's part of communication, isn't it? You know if you're clicking with somebody. But here's the, player, here is, here is the area where it gets bad. And this is, again, where what God has established as good, the enemy is right there to uh, take it to an extreme and make it bad. See, when we're reading body language, when we're reading people's thoughts or, or reading their eyes, we're quite often tempted to start reading their thoughts. And all of a sudden now, as they're talking back and forth and we're communicating, we begin reading between the lines. And what they're saying now, we're saying now, do they really mean that or not? Now all of a sudden I'm starting to discern or judge people's motives. And when I start getting into the world of judging motives, I'm getting into really dangerous territory because I don't have the right to judge a motive. I don't know how to judge motives. I can't see your motivation. All I see is the outward expressions, and I see what the actions are, and I see what you're doing, and I can judge those. I mean, that's how I know the fruit. That's how I know if you're an apple tree or a pear tree because I see the fruit hanging from the branch. But I can't, look, I can't see that branch and look into the moisture content of that branch and tell if that's an apple tree until that produces the apple. No more than can I look into your heart and see your motivation for what you say until I see your action. Then the actions that I can judge. And I can then discern the actions. But so often the, the enemy wants to get in while, we're, while the fruit is still on the bud, so to speak. While, while the, before the action even comes into play. And the enemy wants to get in and start getting us to start judging people's motives. And we're instructed in the word not to do that. That's prejudgment and that's wrong. And that, that brings dissension and disunity in the body. And as Satan, he's a master of getting us to read between the lines. And, uh, and, and here's what we really should do. When we get to the point where we're talking to somebody and we're trying to understand what, what's really happening, what's in this dialogue, here's what you should do. You should give them the benefit of the doubt that what they're thinking is good about you and not bad. If you could think that then it would help you in your next comment back to them that you're going to say something good, n nice to them. But if you start thinking that, okay, now I've said something and they're re negatively reacting to it, now I've got to come back with a, a defensive word because I know what they're thinking and they're thinking that I'm lying to them and they're thinking that I'm going to hurt them and they're thinking bad. And how do you know what you're thinking? You don't have any idea what they're thinking. But the devil brings that accusation to us that they're, that they're negatively reacting to you, so therefore you're on a defensive. And when you're on a defensive, what happens to your judgment? Where do you go when you're on the defensive? You go to protect yourself. 
and you protect yourself many times by striking out at something else. So we caught up. Here we're in a fight, and you haven't even said anything yet. Because in my mind, I have this accusation. The devil's putting accusations in my mind because I'm reading between the lines of what you're saying to me or how you're not saying things to me. And that's how the devil then brings accusations from brethren to brethren, and he's a master at that. So really what he does is all he has to do is that he brings this little tidbit, this little tidbit of perception, because we all know the saying, perception's reality. We don't worry about facts. Let's not go to the facts. Let's just take the perception of what I think, and I'll make that my reality, and then all of a sudden that's what I'm dealing with, and that's why I'm judging you is on my perception of what I think. Don't worry about the facts, okay? And when that, when that happens, when the devil starts that, then all he's got to do is sit back and watch us fight. He just sits back then and says, okay, now I've got him. And now look, look at them go. Look at them bite at each other. Look at them nip at each other. Look at them giving doubt to each other. Look at them. Watch them. And you know what will happen? You'll dis- we'll destroy ourselves from the inside out because somebody believed a perception Because somebody read between the lines and got the wrong idea of what I was really trying to say or what you were really trying to say, and all of a sudden now we're in a big fight and we don't even know what we're fighting about. Ever thought about that? How many times have you you had a discussion with your spouse and at the end of it you're all heated and you don't even remember what it was about? I'm pretty good at that because I don't remember things very well. So at the end of it I'm thinking, what are we fighting about? It's crazy. It's just the way the enemy works in our hearts and our lives. And we, just, we need to take that, those thoughts captive. And we need to understand that when he brings accusations, understand what he's trying to do with those accusations. And if we would give the person the benefit of the doubt and think, you know what? They love me. They really do love me. They're not out to hurt me. So therefore, what they're saying, I must be mis- I must not hearing that right. So give them the benefit of the doubt and let them... Let them prove to you. So what should you do when, when, when you hear this? Should you believe it and continue to speculate? Or should you talk to others and see if they are reading between the same lines you're reading between? And all of a sudden, you know what, that starts a big gossip chain. And say, hey, did you hear what this person did? Did you hear that? Is that what you're supposed to do? Or are we, or, or are we thirdly, to pray about it and ask God to give us discernment and to recognize what is this thing that I'm hearing. What is this thing coming in my mind? Is it the devil bringing judgment? Is it the devil bringing division, dissension? And let's recognize what it is and don't let him make us his tools to fight his battle because so often that's exactly what happens. And then we've lost the spiritual unity that God wants in us. Closeness among Christians is almost as powerful as closeness between us and God. Let me repeat that again. Closeness among Christians is almost as powerful as closeness between us and God. See, God created us with one purpose, and that is to have a loving relationship with us. God created us because he wants to have a loving relationship with us. And then, as he created other humans... He wanted us to have a loving relationship with other humans. So the key word is relationship. And then the other key word is loving relationship. 
So that's why God's created us. And what happens that sin, what sin does, sin breaks relationships. Sin breaks the relationship that I have with God. Sin breaks the relationship that I have with you. And vice versa. And all of a sudden now, what God created us for with this thing called relationship, we're now separated from who created us, God. And we're also separated from his other creations, each other. And that's exactly where the enemy wants to get us. Because he, he, if, we're, if we're standing on our own, we are no match for the enemy. Talked a little bit in Sunday school today how important people are and how important we are for each other. The Satan wants to separate us, and when he can separate us, then he will, um, he will win. You're not strong enough on your own. And I would venture to say, even if you have Christ in your heart, we are not, as Dick said in, in, in Sunday school, no man is an island. We cannot exist on our own. You can think you can, but, you know, I'm telling you, it's very, very difficult. If you think you can live a spiritual life, a Christian life, and never come to church, never be around other Christian people, and you think you and you alone and the Holy Spirit are going to defeat the enemy, he's got a lot of weapons that are going to come against you. So rather than me make an absolute and say you can't do it, let me just say this, why do you want to do it? Why do you want to put yourself in that position? Why do you want to keep yourself out of church? Why do you want to keep yourself out of fellowship with other believers? Come in. Be together. We need you. You need us. We need to have different strengths. We have different giftings. We need to work together. And as we do that, we can accomplish much. But if we hold out and think, I don't need them, you're listening to the wrong voice. You're listening to the wrong wisdom. You're not listening to godly wisdom because God established the home and God established the church. And for those two reasons, we need to be a part of both. We need to be an active part of our home, and we need to be an active part of our church. And either, either time I separate from my home, I separate from my family, you're not, you're not a godly person. You separate from your family, you pull yourself away from them and say, I don't need my family. Yes, you do need your family. And if there's not a godly family, then they need you even worse, because they need you to be a light in, the, in their darkness. Don't separate yourself from your family even if they aren't Christians. Go there and be a Christian man or a woman or a young person in your family and win your parents to Jesus and win your brothers and sisters to Jesus. Don't separate yourself and don't separate yourself from the church. Bring them in and let us help, um, help nurture them and surround them with the love. Unity is, is absolutely important. In the King James translation, excuse me while I take a drink for a minute. I'm struggling with a little bit of a cold, and so my allergy medicine keeps me dry. In the King James Version, there are at least 12 different verses that use the term one accord. Probably the most well-known, at least for the, in the Pentecostal settings, is this, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And it says in the KGV, and, one, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mushy, rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. When they were all with one accord, then it happened. They didn't come when they were, disunity, when they were in, in, in dissension. 
the Holy Spirit waited patiently until they were all in one accord, meaning all had the same mindset, all having the same goal, all having the same direction, all in the same purpose, to love Jesus as their number one goal. Then they were in one accord, and the Holy Spirit came, and they were all filled with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. Another example giving in cha- and later on in chapter 2 of, of Acts in 46 and 47, it says, And they, the church, the early church, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Here it is again. As they are in one accord And they are fellowshipping with each other. They are eating together. They are socializing together. They are outside the church walls being together, being unified together, not backbiting, not backtalking against each other, not gossiping against each other, not not trying to make one look better than the other outside in the community. The community saw them as one accord. And when the community saw them with one accord, they said, God must be in that place. And then when they saw that, then what happened? The Holy Spirit grew the church. The Holy Spirit grew the church when all were together in one accord. Then the Holy Spirit has the authority and the power to work and grow the church. It's not people that grow the church. It's not me that grows the church. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit working in all of us to have one accord, to be in unity, to have one mind, to be single-mindedness, as they said, as it says here, breaking bread together with gladness and singleness of heart. And then the Holy Spirit moved and the church grew. So God is intending for us to dwell in one accord in unity of the body so that the world may see us as one. And then when the world sees us as one, the church will grow. Does this mean that we don't have disagreements? That we won't have um, a, a, a change of heart? Or does it mean that we're always going to agree? No, we're not always going to agree with some of the minor things. We are going to, we're different people. We have different, different likes and dislikes, and that's fine. But what that does mean, though, is that we are to have godly and spiritual discernment so that we can properly and efficiently deal with such matters as a spiritual people and not a carnal people or a fleshly people. We must be careful that we are praying and carefully listening to the wisdom that comes from heaven versus the wisdom that comes from this world. And there is a difference. In that wisdom, James chapter 3 tells us that. James chapter 3, verses 13 and 18, through 18, it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Do you see the difference in the kinds of wisdom that are there that's mentioned in that scripture? A wisdom that is full of me Wisdom that is full of what's in it for me, what's in it for my personal gain, is not godly wisdom. We talked about when Satan fell, 
one of our earlier messages talked about how he in all of his splendor and the way that he was created as one of the best created beings in heaven took that wisdom that he had in heaven and when he came down to earth and fell that wisdom became the foundation of worldly wisdom so it's not that satan's not smart he's very smart he's very cunning and his wisdom is very real but it's just the opposite of god's wisdom so we are not to uh, we, we are to be very careful that when we are discerning things when we're praying for things that we're listening to the right wisdom we're not listening to the wisdom of this world or of the carnal or of our flesh, but we're listening to godly wisdom, which brings peace and unity. So be careful. It's very important that we need to know that because Satan brings accusations many times um, against us that he will bring, and then he brings his wisdom and his twisted knowledge around it. See, it's easy for Satan to bring accusations against us because our sin is, is real. Okay, I think that, that we have to understand that our sin, that when we sin, uh, that is real stuff. That we can't overlook the sin that comes. Sometimes we will justify our lives and so that we, since we are Christians, we think we don't sin anymore. Well, uh, let me tell you right now, I don't want to burst your bubble, but you'll still sin. Because we're still here in this, we're still in the battle. That doesn't mean that I'm an evil person. It means that I'm a, I'm a man, I'm human, and I'm going to make mistakes. And I'm going to sin and I'm going to fall. And so the devil has fertile ground there all of a sudden because now he takes the sin that I've done and he properly accuses me because I've sinned. And he knows all about it. We can't hide our sins no more than we can hide our sins from God. Can we hide it from the devil? And he knows our sins. And many times we're like that little boy in the bathtub and, uh, and his mom walks in and he says, All right, I don't want you to see me naked, Mom, so I'm going to cover my eyes until you walk out. Now, did that do any good? No. See, the logic is, if I can't see, you can't see. And that's sometimes, that's sometimes how we want to think about our sin. If I can't see it, if I'm not going to look at it, then God, it's not real. Or Satan, it's not real. Well, it is real, folks. Your sin is real. And until you see it as ugly and detestable as God sees it, you are, you are deceived and the enemy's winning. So see your sin as what it is. It's ugly and it's deceptive and it's wrong and you need to repent of it. Every day, don't buy into the fact that I'm forgiven once and for all and never going to sin again. You buy into that and the devil's got you right where he wants you, deceived, and you're going to go to hell in a deceptive state because the Bible is going to say there are those that said, I never knew you not. I knew you not. And do not be in that party. So understand that when you sin, understand it's real. But that God is there to forgive you if you have that quick, that King David heart that we talked about a few months ago, that quick, repentant heart, ready to bring it to God and to get on your face before God and to ask for forgiveness, then God will take care of it. And you can do that every day. Every day you can go before God, and you should go before God every day. Galatians 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Now here's what he's saying. He's talking about people in the church. He said, brothers, you wouldn't call somebody that's not in your church or not in your family a brother. So Paul is talking to the Galatians, and he's talking to the people in the church. He's saying, brothers, 
If someone is caught in a sin, in other words, their brethren, they're saved people, but they've been caught in something. They got caught up in something that's wrong. You that are spiritual should restore them gently. Come to them gently and say, hey, can I help you? Can I help you get through this tough time in your life? And I know that gets really complicated because that's where the devil starts playing big-time accusations against people like, who are you? Who are you to come and help me? Just so dangerous, so hard, so tough. But that's what the Bible says. And we're going to preach Bible. So we all are to understand that Satan wants to use the sin in my life to destroy me and destroy you and destroy your home, destroy your church. So then what are we to do when this happens? What are we to do when this happens? We are to examine our own life on a daily basis. We are to repent of our known sins. We are, we are not to try to hide them or justify them. We are to recognize the sin is in our life and to deal with it so that the devil doesn't have a legitimate foothold anymore against me. That he doesn't have a legitimate claim because he can say, you've sinned. And I say, I know I sinned. But you know what? Jesus forgives me. And I repented of that sin, devil. In case you don't realize it, I repented of that sin. And I'm not doing that anymore. Where the devil likes to get you wound up is when you say, I'm sorry for the sin, but then I go back to it the next day. And that's when you get caught in a sin, confess, sin, confess cycle where he will win in that cycle because you're really not repentant. You're just saying, you're just agreeing that you've got sin. But until you repent, meaning change, don't do it again. The grace of God is so powerful that it gives the power to change along with the power to forgive. And when we do that, then we can take the claim away from Satan. And he has no more has a legitimate claim on our life because I'll say, yes, I sinned once. But I don't sin anymore, Satan. I don't use that sin anymore, and you can't use it against me. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, in the English Standard Version, it says this. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your own minds, in your minds, because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel. This is the good news that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Do you see here how sin alienates us from God and actually makes us an enemy in our minds against God? This is a deception of the enemy because what, when I sin, it does not change the character of God. It does not make God my enemy, but the enemy will make it so. And I say that because we're new creations, or we're new creatures in Christ. We have sinned, we repent of that sin, we take care of that sin in our life, and then in our mind we've had to make sure that we do not let him accuse us anymore that we're still sinners. Sin doesn't change God. His, nor, nor does it change his love for us. We sang about it, how much God loves us. And when he does love us that, that much, that's the way God sees us in that way. That we have to, God sees us as an object of love so much that he gave us a way out of our sin. And, and, and through God, through Jesus' sacrificial death on a cross. 
Let's continue. But now, verse 22, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Christ's death brings forgiveness and restoration so that we are free from the accusing spirit of the enemy. But we have to continue one more verse. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. So what Paul is saying here is that we can live free from accusation from God or from the enemy. And that we can live a life above reproach when we learn to say no to the ungodly things. And we learn to say no to those temptations. And that we learn to live a lifestyle that is fully pleasing to the Lord that we then can live above reproach and the enemy doesn't have the ability to bring the accusation from us or from other people because we're living not perfect, but we're living above reproach. We're living forgiven. We are very humble. We're very quick to ask for forgiveness. If I wrong you, if I wrong God, I'm quick to come in and know that I have taken care of that sin. So the, second, the fourth thing, finally, then, that Satan is very good at is that he accuses me to myself. And this is probably where we spend most of our time because we are pretty hard on ourselves most of the time. Most of the time we're harder on ourselves than we are with other people. Remember, Satan already accuses us to God when we sin, telling God how much of a miserable failure we are, totally unworthy of his love and compassion, and, and how much we deserve to die that death of destruction forever. Well, Satan doesn't stop there because his next accusation of our sin is to ourself. And he attacks us with a full force, bringing self-condemnation with the same accusation that we are miserable failures and we are never going to be worth anything. So why should we keep on trying so hard? Just give up and give in. It sounds like Job's wife. Just curse God and die, Job. You're never going to get through this thing. And that's one of the most effective ploys that Satan has and he uses it against us all the time. And here's what he does with us is that he, before we sin, he will convince us. He will convince us. He will say, he will convince us to sin. And then after you've sinned, then he comes at you full force with, oh, wow, that was really stupid. <laughs> that was a really stupid thing to do. So he, he plays games with us. And, and as you're dealing with a particular temptation, his, his demonic cheerleaders will come right there and they will encourage you to go ahead and do it. Go ahead. Uh, you can get away with it. You don't, you're different. You're above the rules. God's really not going to punish you. You're different. Go ahead. You can do it only one time. It's your life. No one's going to tell you how to live your life. Uh, it's only one time, and nobody's going to know that you've done it. Uh, everybody else is doing it, so it can't be that bad. You're old enough. Make your own decisions now. And here's the, here's the one that probably gets us the best. You can always ask for forgiveness later. Have you ever heard those accusations come in your mind as you're justifying the sin that you're about to do? So then you go ahead and do it. Okay, you buy into it. You buy into all those reasons that enemies brought to you to, to encourage you to sin. And as soon as you sin, tell me, how do you feel about it? Do you feel good about it? Do you feel like, wow, I have just sinned? No, what you do is you sneak into your, parent, you sneak into your home quietly so your parents don't wake up. You don't want them to smell your breath because they'll smell the cigarette or they'll smell the alcohol. You'll cover up everything else because the devil then comes and says, boy, did you blow it. 
You are a loser. <laughs> Who do you think you are that you can sin and get away with it? Don't, don't you know what God says about sin? Don't you know what happens to sinners? You're going to hell. Wait, Satan, just five minutes ago before you did it, you said I was going to get away with it. See how stupid, he, uh, how stupid we are and how smart he is? Because he takes those accusations and he'll pump us up, making us unva- uh, unfail- unfailable. Only to say that when we do it, he says, you're a fool. What do you want to be? Do you want to be a fool for the enemy? Or do you want to be a fool for Jesus? You're going to be a fool either way. <laughs> so which one do you want to be a fool of? Do you want to be a fool of the enemy where he says, you're a fool because I've tricked you and I've got you right where I want you? Or do you want to be a fool for Jesus to say, Lord, I just want all of you. And I want to live so close to you. I don't want the enemies to come. I don't want his temptations in my life and I'm not going to listen to his accusations. I'm not going to listen to him accusing me because I'm a fool for Jesus. Understand that Satan is a liar. John 8:44. when he lies, he speaks his native language for he is a liar and the father of lies. See, for those of us here that are still young and haven't made the really big mistakes, the reason that we talk about this so much is that we want to help you avoid the pitfalls of where Satan wants to take you. And for those here that maybe have made some mistakes, we want you to see you the way God sees you. And if you have a truly repentant heart, he sees you as forgiven. And he sees you as pure. And he sees you as holy. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.15, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Then skipping to verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And we recognize as we apply, as we apply Christ's saving and changing grace that we are no longer living for ourselves. But we are living for Jesus Christ. We are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And when God looks down at us, he doesn't see our sin any longer. As ugly and as detestable as it was, he sees the blood of Jesus poured over us, cleansing us from all of our sin and our unrighteousness. And that's what we have. And that's the promise that we have. And that's the hope. And that's why Christian people can walk in joy. Even in the midst of difficulty, they can walk in joy because they know that their sins are covered by the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, it says, He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. And then we're seen blameless as God has forgiven us. So, the, so Satan now has no foundation any longer to bring accusation to us. Maybe he did before, but since I've sought God's forgiveness... And I've repented of my sin and I've turned from that wicked way and I've gone now to the way of Christ. We are now willing to become obedient to Jesus. We're willing to become a fool for Jesus and not be a fool for the enemy. Jackie, if you would come, please. Romans 6, 6 and 7 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, Because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. And then skipping down to verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are going to win the battle. 
you are going to win the battle. I don't care how far deep you're into it or how far, far gone you think you are. As long as you have a hope, as long as you have anything inside you that is crying out to God at all, he is still on your side and you are going to win. So hang in there. Don't give up. And this is a perfect time for us to go into communion as the ushers would come forward. As we get ready to take of the Lord's Supper, this is the time to, that all of us need to evaluate our heart's condition. You know, the difference between the difference between Satan's accusations and the Holy Spirit's convictions is this. When Satan brings an accusation, it comes up as a broad blanket of you are worthless. You have no hope. You have nothing to live for. You've blown it. You're dead. That's, that's the accusation of the enemy. There is no hope there. The difference between the accusation of the devil and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit still brings a little pain. You really can't change unless you feel a little pain. So the Holy Spirit comes, though, as a, as a surgical knife, and he will look in areas of your life, and he'll see some sin in your life. As a non-convert, as a maybe a first-time believer, or even as a mature Christian, the Holy Spirit will still bring that little conviction of sin that has crept back in your life. And he'll say, you know, you're a good person. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. It's always covered in love. But he says, I see something in you that I need to change. I see something in you that grieves me. I see something in you that you're not giving me the best. I need you to change that. I need you to repent of that. I need you to take care of that. Before you go any further in your life, you need to take care of that. And this is the perfect time for communion because he also says if you have ought with your brother, take care of your ought with your brother. Don't go into this communion thing lightly. Understand how significant this is and how important this is that we're allowing God to come in with that surgical knife and clean out our empty and our dirty wounds in our lives, in a sin of life. So as a brethren, I'll give you the elements today. I want, if you would just close your eyes, bow your heads, examine your hearts and say, Father, is there any wicked way within me? Is there anything that I need to do? Is there a way that you're accusing me or not accusing, but convicting me of that particular sin? Then help me to take care of that. James chapter 4, verse 7 and 10, it says, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up.
so many ways, so many times, we want to be the change agent in our life. We want to make ourselves happy. But it's only when we submit ourselves to God first. Resist the devil, and he will flee. But I have to submit to God. You have to submit to God. And it's through that submission then that you are coming into their proper relationship with the God that will defeat the enemy. My, on my own ability and you on your own ability will not withstand the enemy's plays against you. You cannot do it on your own. You have to have, you have, to have Jesus in your life. You have to have that submission of him in your life. And then you can resist it. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. See, there has to be a little bit of pain with this true change. There has to be remorse. There has to be uh, a recognition of the ugliness of what it was. Not a justification that I'm not that bad after all. I'm better than a guy down the street. If that's the way you come to God, if that's the way you're basing your salvation on I'm not as bad as that guy, well, that's not acceptable. Just so you know that. That's not acceptable. That's not the way you come to Jesus. You don't come to him. The cross, the, 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 the uh, thief on the cross, when he said, forgive me, he didn't say, I didn't do the sin as bad as the other guy over there. <laughs> he, he wasn't pointing his finger at the guy on the other side of the cross of Jesus. He just said, no, we deserve what we've done. Forgive me. He saw his sin as what it was, ugly and detestable. And when he saw that, then Jesus said, all right, that's what I'm, that's what I'm looking for. That's it. That's the heart I want to see. That's the heart I want to see. That's the, that's the humbleness I want to hear. That's the humbleness I want to see. And then he says in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves before him, and he will lift you up. Wow. Let him lift you up. Let him lift you up. When he, when he lifts you up, you will not fall. When you're in the hand of Jesus, you will not fall. Let him lift you up. Whose hand are you in this morning? Are you in your own hand? Are you holding yourself up? Are you propping up your own self with your own self-justification? Or are you in the hand of Jesus? As we take communion this morning, I encourage you to recognize the hand that you're in. Dear Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for all the things that you've accomplished in our lives. But we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to be that perfect sacrifice for us. So, Lord, as we examine our hearts now before we take this communion, Lord, I pray that you will point out surgically that area of sin in my life that I need to take care of. And before I take this first element, Father, I'm sorry. I'm not going to do it again. 
If that's your prayer, would you repeat this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry over the times that I failed you. I know you love me. And I want to do the things that please you. I repent of my sin. And I thank you for saving me. Amen. today as we go to our homes and we go to our places of business and school this week as we come back tonight Father for praise and prayer Father we just want to bring you with us to please do not leave us Holy Spirit do not do not depart from us as we leave this place go with us as we know you will help us to receive you and partake with you and be a, a blessing to you and to others this week as we go help this message Lord that you brought to our minds today Father to sink in and to be effective and powerful We commit it to you now in Jesus' name.